0: We read Zechariah 14:1 to 8. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city." Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And you will flee... By the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Amen. The prophet Zechariah turns his attention to the future, and in this passage, he is describing the return of Christ. Not only here, but the rest of this chapter will deal with events related to the second coming or the return of Christ. We notice in verse 1 how he signals that this is the fact. In verse 1, he says, Behold, a day is coming. And when it's introduced by behold, it's drawing our special attention to This day, because it's a unique and special day. It's called a unique day in verse 7, a unique day. He says several uh, times or a few times in verse 4, he calls this day that's coming, verse 4, in that day. And 6, in that day. And verse 8, in that day. And also in verse 7, it's a unique day which is known to the Lord. So this day that's coming has to do with the return of Christ in the New Testament. Whenever the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord or the day of Christ, the last days, it's referring to events related to his second coming. Actually, it starts with his first coming, then the intermediate period between the first and the second coming. And we live in that period. And then the events related to the second coming. That's what this day means, that day or in that day. Let's see this in the book of Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Verses one and two. Second Thessalonians. Two, verse 1. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one... Okay, that's the, the main point is right there. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And what happens when this day comes? Our Lord comes verse one, and we are gathered together to him. That's what happens on the day of the Lord. That day. We may also see in the book of Second Peter. Second Peter, chapter three. Second Peter, chapter three. And we'll start at verse 10. In, in the first part of the chapter, the mockers say, where is his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? Then verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 12 says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. It's the day of God. That's the day that is coming. So, Zechariah is introducing this day as well. He's not the only prophet who does so, but he is certainly introducing the day of the Lord here. And speaking of Zechariah and other prophets, let's see this in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses one to 11. Jeremiah chapter 30. And here the prophet will make a reference to Christ, just as Zechariah does. 30 verse 1 of Jeremiah. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck, and will tear off their bonds, and strangers shall no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And fear not, O Jacob my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be quiet and at ease, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only, I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. He speaks of it as that day and that great day in chapter 30, verse 7. But though Jacob will be distressed, the nation will be distressed, he will be saved from it. And we notice that it's in verse 11 where he explains Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. Zechariah is also indicating that there is going to be some devastation, but some of the people will be spared because he said in 14 verse 2 about the city captured, houses plundered, women ravished, half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. He's also indicating that a remnant will be spared from this destruction. Also in Jeremiah 30, verse 9, when he says, David, their king, whom I will raise up for them, David is another name for Christ here in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both refer to Christ as David. And He's even saying in verse 9, Jeremiah 30, verse 9, Whom I will raise up for them, which is a prediction of his resurrection in Jeremiah. Okay, so these are some of the passages that refer to a day that's coming. And this day relates to Christ and his return. In Zechariah 14.1, he says, It's a day for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. The spoil that is taken from you will be divided among you. Well, who takes the spoil from people? Enemies. And then when he says that same spoil will be divided among you, he's saying, though your enemies exploit you, you will conquer them, and you will enjoy what they took from you. He's explaining a reversal of circumstances, the irony of that fact. This is making allusion to the time of the Exodus in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, it mentions this a few times. For example, in Exodus chapter 11, Chapter Eleven, Verse Three. We'll read one to three. Exodus 11, 1 to three. Now the Lord said to Moses, "One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, He will let you go from here. When He lets you go, you will surely dri- He will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man." Asked from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. What's happening here? The Egyptians enslaved Israel and took a lot of their wealth away from them and made them slaves. But now, when they are redeemed, when they are released from bondage, they are going to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of silver and gold and clothing, and the Egyptians are going to happily give all of those possessions that they took as spoil back to Israel when Israel leaves Egypt. And who did this? It says in verse 3, The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians the lord made this happen exodus 12 exodus 12:35 12, and 36 exodus 12:35 now the sons of israel had done according to the word of moses for they had requested from the egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing and the lord had given the people favor in the sight of the egyptians so that they let them have their request thus they plundered the egyptians Plunder or spoil. This has to do with enemies exploiting their neighbors, right? And now Israel plunders Egypt. Egypt had plundered Israel. Now the reversal takes place. Well, why did that happen in the book of Exodus? And why does that happen on other occasions in the Old Testament? That they are at a loss, they're devastated, they lose everything, and then they recover everything. Why does that happen? Because this is an indication, a sign of this final day when there will be this great battle, there will be this great warfare of many nations attacking, but then we will recover and we will be victorious. That's verse 1. Verse 2 For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Who is it that's gathering the nations? The nations are evildoers. They're wicked people doing wrong. They're exploiting the people, according to verse 1. And even in verse 2, what evils are they doing? They capture the city. They plunder houses. They ravish or rape women. Half of the city is exiled. The nations are doing it, but it's not out of control. It's within the sovereignty of God because it says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. He will gather the nations and then he will punish them in verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. He not only gathers them against his people, he then conquers them to deliver his people. Ultimately, it's all God. In Second Kings, Second Kings chapter 21, God threatens something similarly to Manasseh and the people of Judah because of their sins. And when he does, he is saying he is the one responsible. Not so much the Babylonians, though the Babylonians are certainly involved in doing all the wickedness. It is ultimately God. Let's see in Second Kings twenty-one ten. ten to fifteen. 2 Kings twenty one ten. Now the Lord spoke through his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh king of Judah has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites who um, all the Amorites did who were before him. And has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance, and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. When God predicts this destruction by the hands of the Babylonians as a sign of his eternal judgment and condemnation of their sins, he says in verse 12, I am bringing such calamity or evil on Jerusalem and Judah. I am, he says. Verse 13, I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. In earlier years, about a a century before, Samaria and the house of Ahab, the, the northern kingdom, was punished. God measured it. God knew exactly what he was doing. He measured. He did it with precision. That's what he's indicating when he says, the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. He measured it with precision, and then he destroyed it. And further, like a housewife, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. God is doing that, making it, making a clean sweep of everything in Jerusalem. And then in 14, I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. God is the one doing it and delivering them to their enemies, and they shall become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies. This will happen with finality in Zechariah 14.2. God's going to make certain that this happens. And it's happening because of the sins of the people. The sins of the people, the sins of the majority at least. And then the remnant that's not cut off, they are being tested by fire. They are in the furnace of affliction. They are the ones who have to moan and groan because of everything that they see around him and even witness the destruction that's happening all around them. That's what's happening in verse 2. Now verse 3. After God assembles the nations, He's going to disassemble them or destroy them. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations... As when he fights on a day of battle. The Lord is the one who will finally, ultimately, deliver his people against the nations that he brought to afflict them. He's the one going to deliver them. And he says about himself, as when he fights on a day of battle. Notice the pronoun there the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Now, is God a warrior? He's describing himself as one. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15, verses 1 to 3. Exodus 15, 1 to 3. This song of Moses and Israel the song of the sea Moses and Israel it says this Exodus 15:1 After God destroyed Pharaoh and his army in the sea they composed the song and happily sang it verse 1 Exodus 15:1 Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang the song to the Lord and said I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a warrior. That means that he fights, and he fights on behalf of his people. In 14.14 of Exodus, it says, The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Now now that we've seen this in the Old Testament let's see in the New Testament where this same kind of terminology and deliverance is mentioned. 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 3 to 12. In this case, the addressees are the believers, the church, who are under affliction. We may call them the remnant. That includes us. Second Thessalonians one three, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and f- faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, in order that the name Of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Though we undergo afflictions and persecutions now, this is for our testing and it is so that we might be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And then, what will happen when God intervenes on our behalf? In verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Like in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14. The people are afflicted by the nations, and then God intervenes as a warrior to deliver his people. And it is God who is actively involved because it is only just, only righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Our afflictors will be afflicted by God, punished by God. And when that happens, then relief comes to us in verse 7. But what is the trigger? On what does this hinge? When will this happen? It says in 7, "...when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven." When he re- is revealed from heaven, when he descends from heaven, then this will come come about. That revelation, when he is revealed, verse 7, is the same thing as in verse 10. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. What's that day? The day of his return, the day of the Lord. That day, in that day, or on that day. <coughs> is the day of Christ. Okay, now, 14 verse 4. 14, 4. of Zechariah. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. When he returns, he will stand on the Mount of Olives. This mountain, the Mount of Olives, it says, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. This will be the place where he lands when he returns, it says, says here, he's going to stand here on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem to the east. This may ring a bell to us. What actually happened on the Mount of Olives? There is a discourse known as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. Let's find this in Matthew 24. Matthew chapter... 24. The Olivet Discourse. It says in Matthew 24, verses 1 to 3, And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? After he mentions the destruction of the temple, the disciples and Christ, they are at the Mount of Olives. That's why this discourse, chapters 24 and 25, is known as the Olivet Discourse, when he explains these events. And what are the three questions they ask him that he explains in chapters 24 and 25? They say, tell us, when will these things be? What things? The things he just mentioned in verses 1 and 2. The destruction of the temple. Then they ask, what will be the sign of your coming? Your coming. This means they know about the second coming. Contrary to liberals who say, the disciples thought he was going to come instantly, very quickly, They didn't expect him to ascend into heaven. They did not expect a long period of time. No, right here. They say, what will be the sign of your coming? They do know. They do understand that there's going to be some time that passes. It's not going to be quick and in their lifetime, necessarily. And of the end of the age, these are their three questions. That's what he undertakes to explain in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. And then speaking of this tribulation and distress that Zechariah describes 24:21 says, "For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall nor ever shall this is the great tribulation then also he says in 24:29 we'll notice some of these words and phrases are comparable to zechariah 24:29 to 31 but immediately after the tribulation of those days The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Christ will return with cataclysmic events. Even Zechariah describes cataclysmic events. He describes earthquakes, and he describes how the luminaries will dwindle. He describes things that are similar to this right here. And further, we'll explore this some more, but he says that, his angels are going to come with Him. Even in 2 Thessalonians 1, to 3-12, we read of His angels coming in flaming fire with Christ. Zechariah describes the same with the Holy Ones who will come with Him. But where will He land, or where will He return? The Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. When He ascended... Let's see what it says about where they were. Acts chapter 1. We'll read uh, verses 9 to 12. 9 to... Well, let's read 6 to 12. 6 to 12. And verse 12 it introduces a new paragraph, but the reason for verse 12 will become... Evident when we read it. We'll read 1 6. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, this dialogue <coughs> transpires between him and his disciples. 1 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Verse 12 tells us where this dialogue took place. Where did it take place? Mount of Olives, or the mount called Olivet. Where Jesus ascended, he's also going to descend, according to these verses. Zechariah, Matthew, and the book of Acts. We said in... 14.4 that there will be cataclysmic events and as it says in 14.4 the mountain will be split in two and when this happens it's going to be a terrifying event according to verse 5. A terrifying event because the people will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. This Azel is difficult to identify the exact place, but presumably it's a location near Jerusalem where they can flee far enough away from this cataclysmic event. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now, Zechariah in 14.5 mentions something that was a well-known historical event in Israel. He mentions this earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. The prophet Amos, actually, a few hundred years, at least 200 years before Zechariah, he mentions this same earthquake. And he dates his prophecy... Accordingly, the book of Amos, Amos chapter 1, verse 1, Amos 1, 1. Zechariah tells us it took place in the days of King Uzziah. Amos tells us according to when he (laughs) preached this message. It says in Amos 1, 1, The words of Amos, who was among the sheepherders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah king of Judah and in the days of Jeroboam son of Joash king of Israel two years before the earthquake which earthquake is Amos meaning the same earthquake Zechariah is meaning this big terrible earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah That is remembered in the history of Israel. And the date of this earthquake would uh, likely be around 700, at least 700 BC, if not about 780 BC. That's when this earthquake likely took place. So then... If this is the, the case, the people have something that is known centuries later to the people, well-known, and it should give them an idea of how bad it will be when Christ returns. It's going to terrify everybody. Well, also verse 5 gives another reason why everyone will be terrified. Then the Lord my God will come. The Lord my God will come. Who is going to come? Who is going to return according to Zechariah? The Lord my God. It says in verse 3, 3 and 4, The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Does that not assume that he will be incarnate? If we're to take it literally? And presumably it's literal. So if this is his incarnation, Zechariah is assuming that the people understand that he will come as the son of God and son of man. In his incarnation, he'll become son of man. And then in his return, he's going to come with his body still. That explains why when he ascended, he ascended in his glorified body. He has his glorified body even now. According to Philippians three twenty to 21 and 1 Timothy 2, 4 and 5, he currently has a body, a glorified body, and he'll return in that body. Zechariah is preaching the same message. The Lord my God will come. He's going to come. But who else will also come. He says, and all the holy ones with him. In Matthew twenty four, twenty nine to thirty one we read where he's going to send forth his angels. We read also in second Thessalonians chapter one, three to twelve, that he will come with his angels in flaming fire. He's going to come with His angels. The angels are sometimes called holy ones. Holy ones or saints. Because they are holy or saints in the perfect sense. Because they don't sin. Not the good angels. They don't sin. The fallen angels, of course, they have sinned and they continue to sin. But not the good ones. And it is God, it is the Lord, who... Has many innumerable angels around him. Look at Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy 33, 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 33, 1 and 2. 33 verse 1. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. The Lord came forth from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. They're called holy ones. What are these holy ones? They are angels. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. This is repeated in Psalm 68, 17. Psalm 68, 17. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, as at Sinai in holiness. Not only at Sinai did he appear to them with myriads or thousands or tens of thousands of angels, holy ones, but here too, as we look to the future, it says that God is this way. This is the way God dwells. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. Daniel the prophet, he saw a vision like this. Daniel 7, 9 and 10. He's looking forward to the day of judgment and he sees the following. Daniel 7, 9 and 10. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. The day of judgment many around his throne. And this thought should not surprise us. Let's look at two historical incidents when this is mentioned. The fact that God has innumerable angels attending him. The first example is an Old Testament example, 2 Kings 6. 2 Kings 6. 15 to seventeen 15 to seventeen elisha the prophet and his attendant are in a desperate situation the enemies of the enemy of Israel is has encircled them and is threatening them elisha isn't bothered his attendant is until the attendant sees what elisha sees 2 Kings 6.15. Now, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Well, who or what were on those horses and chariots of fire? Angels. Elisha knew and saw, now the servant sees, and his fears are calmed. Our New Testament example comes from Matthew, Matthew 26. Matthew 26. 26:53. 26, Matthew 26:53. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Christ, all he had to do is say the word. And the Father would have dispensed or dis, dis, um, sent at his disposal more than 12 legions of angels, just like that. 12 <coughs> legions. A legion is 6,000 troops. So 12 times 6, <coughs> 72,000. Just like that. Just say a word, and he's got all the, the might, military might, he needs. That wasn't used then to prevent the crucifixion, but it will be used when he returns for the day of judgment. All of these angels. Okay then, Zechariah, he further describes what happens. And he says a couple of things, a couple of things that will remind us of the book of Revelation. Six to eight, he says, and it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in Winter. The first to, thing to note in verse 6 is that there will be no light. No light. No light of the luminaries. What are the luminaries? The sun, the moon, and the stars. No light of the luminaries of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Let's first see an Old Testament reference in Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60:15. 60, Isaiah 60:15 to22. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of nations and will suck the breast of kings." Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. And instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. And I will make peace your administrators and righteousness your overseers. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. Your sun will set no more, neither will your moon wane. For you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your morning will be finished. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Now, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 23. twenty one twenty three And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamb twenty two five Revelation twenty two five and there shall no longer be any night, and there shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God shall illumine them and they shall reign forever and ever God will be God's glory will radiate and illumine all of us no need for the light of the sun or the moon Also verse 7 says that it is a unique day which is known to the Lord known to the Lord we read in Isaiah 60 verse 22, I the Lord will hasten it in its time. The Lord knows the time, he will hasten it whenever he so chooses. He knows that day, we don't know that day. As Jesus also said in the book of Matthew, Matthew 24:36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. It's a unique day known to the Lord. The disciples were also asking Christ this question in Acts chapter 1. Did they not? Did they not say in Acts 1, 6, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And the answer of Christ to them was, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. That's why it's a unique day known to the Lord. And then the final verse, verse 8 of our passage, And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, Living waters. By living waters, the opposite of living waters are dead waters, obviously. But what is dead water? Stagnant water. Stagnant water that's full of all kinds of insect and diseases, undrinkable, non-potable water. That's what dead water is. But that's not going to be there anymore. There will be running water, living water, fresh water potable water. That's what is here in 14.8. Well we find this explained in Revelation 22. 22 and it's in verses 1 and 2. But we'll read 1 to 5 to conclude. 22 verse 1. And he showed me a river of the water of life. "'clear as crystal, "'coming from the throne of God "'and of the Lamb "'in the middle of its street. "'And on either side of the river "'was the tree of life, "'bearing twelve kinds of fruit, "'yielding its fruit every month. "'And the leaves of the tree "'were for the healing of the nations. "'And there shall no longer be any curse, "'and the throne of God and of the Lamb "'shall be in it, "'and his bondservants shall serve him. "'And they shall see his face.' And his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. So then what we find in Zechariah 14 is explained in other scriptures in reference to the return of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.